The following sermon was delivered by Associate Pastor Kate Dunn during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Reverend Dunn. Please pray with me. God of mercy, you promised never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change. Then may we respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Our first reading comes from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, beginning with the 15th verse. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. From Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And from the beginning of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Some of you may remember the musical Cabaret about an American singer and dancer, Sally Bowles, living in Berlin in the early 1930s when the Nazis were beginning to rise in power. One scene takes place in a German beer garden. As a diverse group of people enjoy a pleasant afternoon and at the cafe, a fresh-faced, innocent-looking Aryan youth begins to sing. The sun on the meadow is summery warm. The stag in the forest runs free, but gather together to greet the storm. Tomorrow belongs to me. The dynamic in the crowd changes as more and more youth and townspeople join their voices to the song. 
In the movie, the camera slowly zooms in on the Aryan youth swastika armband. The Jewish men and women in the beer garden and others, uncomfortable with the growing nationalist fervor overtaking the crowd, begin to quietly walk away. By the time the Hitler youth and Nazi sympathizers sing the final verse, it has become a chilling scene. Now, fatherland, fatherland, show us the sign your children have waited to see. The morning will come when the world is mine. Tomorrow belongs to me. Ironically, although it was written by a gay Jewish composer and intended to demonstrate the danger of nationalistic propaganda, this song has gained popularity among white nationalists today who consider it a sort of anthem for their cause. Some people do indeed think that tomorrow belongs to them. For better or worse, music is a powerful way to unify people behind ideas. It's simply true that it's easier to recall concepts that are set to music, whether it's A, B, C, D, E, F, G, or a commercial jingle, like one that I learned when I was eight years old and will probably remember till the day I die, that Oscar Mayer has a way with B-O-L-O-G-N-A. <laughs> there are others of you who remember that too. And of course, music can touch our heartstrings in a way that mere words and doctrine cannot. This Advent, we're diving into some of the season's carols for a closer look, asking what do these songs that we've returned to year after year have to tell us about the big questions of our life and of our faith? What mysteries do they explore? What glad tidings do they tell? The carol that the choir just sang of the Father's love begotten is one of the oldest Christmas carols in existence, the second oldest, actually. How did the song come to be, and why do we still sing it today? To answer these questions, I want to take you on a little excursion into church history. There once was a 4th century Christian priest named Arius who lived in Constantinople at a time when one of the church's most hotly debated theological questions was, how do Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate to one another? Did one of them come first? Is one more powerful than the others? What exactly is the nature of God? Many competing ideas existed, and leaders of the Christian church spent an extraordinary amount of time and energy arguing with each other about these questions. Arius contended that a single, indivisible, divine being existed, and this being was God the Father. According to Arius, God the Father created the Son to do the Father's will. Jesus was therefore not God, but a creation of God. Similar to God to the Father, but not the same. According to Arius, first came God, then came Jesus. Now, in addition to being a priest, Arius was also a songwriter. And knowing the power of music to convey ideas, Arius made a concerted effort to popularize what he believed to be true about the relationship between God and Jesus. 
He composed ditties and set them to popular tunes. Sailors and millers and travelers on the road could be heard singing a catchy song with the phrase, there was when he was not. Or, to paraphrase the opening of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was not the word. Now, other church leaders who disagreed with Arius found this spread of his ideas alarming and dangerous. They appealed to the highest authority in the land, the Emperor Constantine, a fairly recent convert to Christianity, to do something to squelch this Arian heresy. Constantine didn't seem to have strong opinions about Christian doctrine, but he did think that this quarreling among the Christians did not benefit the Roman Empire. So in the year 325, Constantine demanded that Christian leaders gather together at his summer palace in Nicaea and not leave until they had gotten themselves on the same page about the nature of God. So they met, they debated, and ultimately the council decided that Arius was wrong. God and Jesus were not just similar, they were the same. The first draft of the Nicene Creed affirmed that the Son was true God from true God, begotten from the Father and not made. That is, the relationship between God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit is not temporal, but dynamic. God the Father is eternally unbegotten. Jesus the Word is eternally begotten from the Father, and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from them both. I suspect these theological arguments made Constantine's eyes glaze over. He really didn't care what the end result was. He just wanted to lay the issue to rest. Unfortunately, many people still found Arius's views convincing, and of course, there were those catchy tunes the sailors and mill workers kept singing. In the beginning was not the word. There was when he was not. The dispute continued for decades until finally a second ecumenical council met in Constantinople in 381 and adopted an expanded version of the Nicene Creed, declaring definitively that Father, Son, and Spirit are all of the same nature, three and yet one. This is the creed that we still use today. But they still had to find a way to share their orthodox theology with the masses, And what better way to do that than with a good song? Enter a man named Aurelius Clemens Prudentius. Born in Spain in the year 348, he was a lawyer by training and a successful, prosperous court official for Roman Emperor Theodosius. But at age 57, he had a midlife crisis. And he abandoned his career and his wealth and retired to a monastery to write Christian poetry and hymns. His best-known hymn, Of the Father's Love Begotten, tells a story that is cosmic in proportion of creation, the fall, and redemption, and the mystery of the Trinity. The song urges all people to join together with angels and archangels praising God. And many centuries later, members of the Church of England, wanting to bring spiritual wisdom from ages past into the present, translated the hymn from Latin to English, and it has been a staple in our hymnals ever since. So 
enough church history. Why are we still singing this hymn today? We have a lot going on in our lives, and doctrine and lofty theological concepts can only get us so far. We look at today's headlines, as people have done for generations, and wonder what the world is coming to. The present can feel pretty unnerving. I suspect that the present always has felt unnerving. We're certainly not the first generation to feel distress about the state of the world or the future of the church, or even to fear that we may be living in apocalyptic times. The early Christians, whom Paul and John the Gospel writer and John the Relevator addressed in the scriptures we read this morning, certainly felt that they were living in frightening times. John the Revelator wrote his apocalyptic visions in response to the rampant injustice and oppression of the Roman Empire. He wrote to Christians who sought to hold on to their faith that Jesus, not Caesar, was Lord, at a time when answering the question, who is Lord, had life or death consequences. In the face of a vast empire of power and might, John the Revelator proclaimed that tyranny and injustice would one day come to an end. That the empire was, in fact, no match against the one for whom there is no beginning and no end, the Alpha and the Omega. It was an astonishing claim. Could John's readers, followers of Jesus who felt so terribly vulnerable in the face of the Roman Empire's power and might, trust that such an audacious vision might actually be true? Can we trust that vision today? We may find ourselves relating to those early Christians, frightened in the face of looming threats. We see a rise in authoritarian governments throughout the world. We see the crisis of climate change threatening catastrophe to our planet. We see refugees and migrants fleeing violence, desperate for a place to call home. We see the continued creation of weapons of mass destruction. We see rates of death by suicide and overdose on an alarming upward trend. It's scary. And then there are the unexpected challenges we find ourselves facing in our personal lives. Challenges we're not sure how we'll find the strength to confront. Perhaps a recent diagnosis or a sudden loss has changed the landscape of our future. And a reality that seemed so certain last year or even last month has shifted under our feet, making the days ahead uncertain and fearful. Perhaps we find ourselves part of a community engulfed in anguish or struggle where we are called upon to exercise a leadership role and offer all the spiritual resources that we can muster 
to ease the community's suffering and find a path forward through the pain. Perhaps a seemingly implacable conflict has erupted within our circle of family and friends, a betrayal of trust or broken promise that has shattered a peace we assumed would last, and now we find ourselves wondering if what has been broken can ever be made whole again. Life is difficult. The demands on our time and attention and energy are great. We hardly have a minute to ourselves. Does anything change for us? If in the midst of trying to manage the challenges of our own personal lives and trying to be responsible citizens of the world and trying to be faithful Christians, does anything change if we pause and consider a bigger picture? The authors of today's scriptures and Prudentius, the poet, would all say, yes, seeing a bigger picture does change things. If, as photographers often do, we widen our lens, we may actually see the challenges we're facing differently and may be able to cope with them from a place of greater strength. What determines our vision of the future and who we think tomorrow belongs to? It may depend on the songs that we sing. A couple times a year I go on retreat, often to Episcopal retreat houses, and I've come to appreciate Episcopal liturgy, particularly a prayer at the end of the day service, Compline. It goes like this. Be present, O oh merciful God, and protect us through the hours of this night so that we who are wearied by the changes and chances of this life may rest in your eternal changelessness. How many of us feel wearied by the changes and chances of this life can we let ourselves, as this prayer and our hymn invite us, rest in the eternal changelessness of God? Or do our anxieties and fears, our sense of being so small in the face of overwhelming trials, keep us perpetually on guard, alert, and primed to either fight or flee? Legend has it that before Roman gladiators entered the arena where they would fight to the death for public amusement, they would turn to the emperor and say, we who must die salute you. In his poem, For the Time Being, a Christmas Oratorio, W.H. Auden borrows this sentiment. The narrator addresses God with these words, we who must die Demand a miracle. How could the eternal do a temporal act? The infinite become a finite fact. Nothing can save us that is possible 
we who must die demand a miracle. This is the big picture, the beginning and the end of the story. Before everything else, there was and is and will be forever a God who loves us and who loves this world, who came to live among us as one of us so that we could know who God really is and who promised to come again and to bring justice and peace to the earth. God chose to be born into our world as a human baby, to live and love and die as one of us, because we, God's beloved children, needed that miracle. We still need it. We need to know that God loves us that much. And because we need it, God did it. And that truth changes everything. Friends, life is short. And we do not have much time to gladden the hearts of those who make this earthly pilgrimage with us. So be swift to love and make haste to do kindness. And the blessings of God Almighty, the Father who creates, the Son who redeems, and the Holy Spirit who stirs the heart and soul be upon you this day and remain with you always. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Thank you and God bless.